Hi there guys, this is Liam from the Punks and Pubs. You're going to be listening to me in a second ramble about some shit with someone. This is an advert from the off, just to let you know, but the reason that this is an advert is not because someone's paying me, it's because I've just been happy with the service I've been provided. Merchstore.co.uk are a bunch of guys who have printed my t-shirts for me, the Punks and Pubs t-shirts, go check them out, and they've been nothing but amazing. The reason that they've been nothing but amazing is because these guys know difficulties of getting your t-shirts printed for a reasonable price they happen to be in bands so they know the process of going to someone and then checking something and then the it's just it's just a long drawn out process but these guys have made it really simple for me and the price has been amazing and the quality of the t-shirts are great so go and check them out merchstore.co.uk i can't make you do it but i would definitely recommend that you do it there you go i'm off Uh, Here's the intro music. I'll talk to you in a second. Oi, oi, you punks. Go on my pub. Welcome to the Punks in Pubs podcast. My name is Liam Bird and Happy New Year if you're listening to this in January 2019. If you're listening to this in November 2020, where the fuck have you been and what's the future like? I'm going to presume it's like Waterworld with Kevin Costner where everything is just fucking wet. If you live in the UK, it's definitely that. (laughs) I hope you had a happy Christmas slash holidays depending on where the world you live and that you're still talking to all your loved ones because let's face it, There's always one dick in the family who ruins it for everyone by talking either politics, religion, or just some fucked up shit that no one wants to hear about their fucking weird life. But everyone's too drunk, and there's just going to take one little click, and then everyone's going to fucking blow up and murder each other. That was my Christmas. Uh, I hope yours wasn't like that. Anyway, that's behind us now. You don't have to see Uncle Nubba for a few months at least. It's the new year, 2019, a new chapter in all our lives, so let's make sure we write a good one. And at Punks and Pubs is part of it. With that in mind, I'm bringing you an iconic way to kick off 2019 because episode 30 is me at a legendary venue at the address that is 100 Oxford Street in London. I'm sat down with the owner Jeff Haunton of the 100 Club. For some of you who might not know what the 100 Club is and why the fuck I was so excited about doing this interview, let me lay down some knowledge. So the 100 Club was predominantly known as a jazz bar, but back in 1976, the 100 Club held a two-day event called the Punk Special. The gig showcased eight punk rock bands who at the time were unsigned. On the bill was The Damned, Buzzcocks, The Clash, Sex Pistols, Sushi and the Banshee, and The Vibrators, just 
to name a few. That festival was seen as a watershed moment for British punk rock, moving from the underground, coming to the mainstream. Since then, Days 100 Club has also seen the rise of ska, reggae and Britpop. A club with just a capacity of 350 people has seen it all. It has bought the t-shirt and Jeff is going to fucking tell those stories in this podcast. We're sat in the backstage room where legends have been. Me and Jeff talk history, music and legacy of the 100 Club. You will hear names like Paul Weller to John Lydon to weirdly Matt Willis of Busted as well as stories about how Sid Vicious actions marked one of the worst days of Jeff's dad's life how Jeff's punk ethics could have got Paul McCartney killed as well as how the club created life for the legendary nighttime presenter that is Jules Holland Jeff talks about his love for punk as well as the two week punk festival that he puts on himself every January it's going on right now so make sure you go check out the line up online www.the100club.co.uk as well as that you will hear about how the club came to be in jeff's family and the struggles he's had to make to make sure it stays that way and we also talk politics and how the politicians need to do more to safeguard venues like the 100 club to make sure that the next wave of british music has a home to learn their craft and like the 100 club we at punks and pubs like to give time to new and unsigned bands so stick around to the end of the show where you will hear music from new jersey's very own p-funk north you want to stick around for that quick update we still have t-shirts to sell you they're 15 pounds each including postage and packaging posted worldwide go and pick yourself up a punks in pubs t-shirt that's it for the plug let's get to the interview this is episode 30 of punks and pubs with the 100 clubs jeff haunton you're gonna fucking love this interview i promise i will talk to you after the chat enjoy have halloween then it was fireworks night and then that's when christmas started yeah. then but the lights are going up earlier and earlier now i mean these these decorations in oxford street have been up since the beginning of october i think it's just crazy just getting ready that's what it is so i am sat in a backstage area that has been um vacated vacated is that the right word vacated no that's that means leave doesn't it Start that again. <laughs> I'm sat in the area whereabouts, uh, in a backstage area in a club whereabouts, artists like Jimi Hendrix, Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, David Bowie, Louis Armstrong, Oasis, Metallica, Paul McCartney. That's even not involving punk music with punk bands. You've got the Damned, Sex Pistols, Clash, Gallows, Hides, Black Flag. I can go on and on and on. But we are in a venue that is hailed 
as the birthplace of punk music. I am at the 100 Club, and in front of me is Jeff Haunton. How are you, man? Very good, thanks, mate. Very good. So, I've just reeled off all those names. And there's very few venues in the world that can probably have that bill on their list. When you're here on your own, like you were earlier on, with... What's the dog's name? Stan. So Stan is sat... Stan sat, the 100 Club dog. Stan is sat right next to me now. Do you ever just look at the, 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 your stage and just go, fucking hell? Do you know what? It's amazing. I've walked past the photographs on the wall here since they were first put up and curated by Emily Beaver, who's an old member of staff at the club and is a photographer, very good photographer. And she did some research and she actually discovered all these amazing photographs, asked permission from the photographers to get them put in frames and actually took all her old ones down, put all the new ones up and included some of the old stuff. And we did a little sort of um, uh, exhibition. This is about 10, 15 years ago. So they've been up there a long time, these current ones. And actually, as you just say, I find myself walking through the club and even though I've seen all these photographs a million times, I suddenly stop and look at any particular one and I think, how did that happen? How did we manage to do that? Yeah. Um, and it is something that I'm really grateful that I still appreciate. I'm still in awe of the fact that people like Queens of the Stone Age have played here and the Sex Pistols and the UK subs and, you know... Uh, the, the fall. I mean, the, 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 I mean, we, we haven't got a photograph up yet, but that's definitely going up. I mean, these are just incredible shows for yeah. a little venue in the middle of the West End that only holds 300 people. Yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. And the, the stage itself is the original stage. It is. And it hasn't changed for all these years. Well, a, well actually, the stage originally, before it became the 100 Club, yeah. was down the far end where the toilets are yeah. and the kitchen. And then when my dad um, took over uh, in 1964 and named it the 100 Club uh, because of its location at 100 Oxford Street, he did that because he wanted to take the word jazz out the title. It had always been in the title, the London Jazz Club, um, London Jazz Shows. But my dad wanted to start a more eclectic music policy. And he got his best mate, a guy called Bill Nile, to build that stage when he first came here. So everyone who's played here since 1964, which includes Muddy Waters, the Sex Pistols, and all the others that I've just mentioned, the specials, they've all played on that stage. The stage in particular, it's a really wide stage. Yeah. It's a really long stage. Is there any reason why that is? No, I've, do you know what? I'm not sure what the original criteria was for yeah. it, but it does seem to work very well. And I think... I would imagine possibly it's because of those pillars in the middle of the room. Yeah. So the wider it is, the more chance there is of being able to see what's going on there. Because that's another reason that this venue shouldn't work. I mean, what other venue in the world has three pillars in front of the stage? I mean, it's just <laughs> staggering, really, but it just seems to work. You spoke about your father then. Uh, so for people who don't know, this club has been in your family for quite a while, hasn't it? Since 1958. So can you explain how your father ended up coming to, to be part of the club? And yeah, the- my, my nan was working for a guy called Ted Morton as against Horton um, who we are uh, who was an accountant and he was a shareholder down here and one day she went into work and he said to her that one of the shareholders was leaving and he thought it was a good idea that she bought a shareholding now my nan's quite a mysterious person um, because she worked as a secretary uh, for Ted and um, she didn't have, you know, well-paid jobs, but she always seemed to have money. I mean, I've got some amazing photographs of her in the 1960s. 
in all these really glamorous places like Monte Carlo, Lisbon, Milan, when flying was really, really expensive. And she looks amazing in sort of twin set and pearls with uh, her half-sister. Um, with a cigarette in one hand and a dry martini in the other. She also had a holiday home down in Dorset. So she obviously had the money from somewhere to buy these shares. So she bought these shares and became, um, I think she owned one third. And then another shareholder decided he'd had enough. And my nan then spoke to my dad, who had a record shop in Walker's Court, and said, look, there's a third of um, this venue. I think it was London Jazz Shows, it was called at the time. Would you be interested? And my dad sold his record shop and bought the shareholding, which allowed him then to become a third shareholder of the club and immediately changed the name to the 100 Club uh, because of its location, as I said earlier. And he immediately had residences with the Stones, um, with the Kinks, with the Who when they were the high numbers. In fact... He reckons that Keith Moon's debut was down here at the 100 Club. He, was, he came in uh, for a trial in the afternoon, got the gig there and then, and the first ever show, just before they became The Who, was with Keith, with Keith Moon on drums, was down here. So how did he already have those contacts? Like, was he already from his record store? Was yeah, and he, also, he worked with a guy called George Webb as a promoter as well, so he was doing quite a bit of... It was mainly jazz promoting, but I think back in those days, jazz was massive. I mean... People like Chris Barber's Jazz and Blues Band, they'd be playing the Hammersmith Apollo, you know, and they'd be doing like five nights there. So I think a lot of the promoters back in the day and the agents that dabbled in jazz were also dabbling in the sort of rock bands. So I think my dad had quite a few contacts through his time as a promoter and as an agent and was able to just ask people about the availability of these other bands. So can you remember the first person who graffitied your walls? Sorry, I, that, that literally came into my head because if you can't, you can't obviously see, but around us are loads and loads of signatures and graffiti and stuff like that. Do you know who the first one is? No, I've got to no. be honest, I don't. Um, this has been around for such a long time that I think some of this graffiti, especially on that wall, which is the original dressing room wall, the one behind you, yep. that graffiti has been here longer than me. So, um, yeah, um, to be honest with you, I wouldn't have a clue. But I'd like to think it was someone like Mick Jagger. <laughs> <laughs> um, am I right in saying that you used to have a Chinese restaurant? We did. At the back, yeah. And Paul Weller tells me he still misses it. Um, and I remember coming down as a six, seven-year-old and the strange exotic smell of alcohol, cigarettes and Chinese food. <laughs> I do remember that really distinctly and actually a lot of people do. But yeah, Mr. Chan um, was um, the man who ran the kitchen. And uh, my mum and dad had moved down to Dorset and taken me down there by this time. This was in the early 70s. And my dad's treat on a Monday was he would always come back with a load of Chinese food from Mr. <laughs> Chan, which my nan used to, my mum, sorry, used to heat up in the, in the oven. And actually, back then, Chinese food was a rarity. I yeah. mean, when I was living in Dort, there were no Chinese food. So it's, it's like, what's this, like, wonder food? It's absolutely amazing. And I'd have kids coming around, mates of mine, who just go, you've got to go around Jeff's house on a Monday night. They've got this Chinese food there, and it's amazing. Do you think kids are missing out now with the fact that they don't, don't have that smell of smoke? Yeah. Like stale smoke and stale well, food. And- although it's strange, you know, since the smoking ban, um, you realise, actually, smoke covered up an awful lot of other stuff <laughs> that's even worse. <laughs> Um, so the club itself has obviously uh, people who listen to this might know the club just for punk but the club itself is probably home to you've always spoken about jazz but obviously blues as well and, and, and reggae and I think the club itself has always had that kind of anarchist spirit even when it didn't know it so like in the 40s 
it was a swing club yep. and um, a lot of the old American GIs would come here yep. and, and um, is it Jitterbug? J- jump, Jive and Jitterbug, which so is frowned upon. Exactly. Yeah. So it's frowned upon. So therefore you were, you were, the, you were promoting that. Um, and also the other thing is it was really frowned upon if black and white people were dancing yeah. together, which is something else that we just used to let happen. Um, because... At the end of the day, no one saw anyone, as, even back then, as being black and white. They're all people with a love, a joint love of great music, dancing, and actually having a great time in what was then a bomb shelter because there's all this amazing jazz going on down here, and up above, London was being bombed. You know, Especially the, in Oxford Street, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. Like, obviously a target for, for of course. the Luftwaffe and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah. and, and, and you know, a lot of the American GIs um, that would play with people like... Glenn Miller, who came into the club, Peanuts Hucko, who was his right-hand man. These guys were actually serving in the American forces, but were over here mm. as, as GIs during the war. We're talking about race as well. You had Don Letts down here playing yeah. reggae, um, which, again, in this area, like during the, the, like the 70s, the, the London police didn't want no. reggae anywhere near the central my, my My dad says to me, so, as I said, we were down in Bournemouth, and, uh, and again... I would spend like a Saturday morning, like so excited because I was coming up to London with my dad. And we would come here on a lunchtime and we'd see Toots and the Matles or Yellow Man or someone like mm. that. And then we'd nip on the, the Victoria line to go up to Tottenham because we're both big Spurs fans and go and watch Spurs in the afternoon. I mean, for me, as a sort of 13, 14 year old kid, it was just unbelievable. My dad says that the police were often down here and would say, shut this down or else we're shutting you down. And my dad would go, but why? You know, yeah. we're not doing anything wrong. And they would just like point over his shoulder and go because of that lot and just point, you know, genetically to a crowd of which, to be honest with you, 50% of them were white anyway. Yeah. But I just think back then the police didn't like the idea of reggae being in mainstream London. To them, it was, its boundaries were like Holloway Road to the north or Brixton to the south. And they didn't want it coming anywhere near it. And, you know, it's just ridiculous. And, and, and again, this is another thing, you know, which we'll talk about later, no doubt, about why I have such, I mean, such awe of punk and what it stands for. Mm. Because people like Joe Strummer and, 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 and Paul Weller, these guys were visionaries. You know, the, the Clash uh, going out without a support band and using Don as a DJ and bringing black kids into their... Uh, gigs um, and, and uh, uh, Paul Weller did the same with A.D. Crowsdale who's a white guy admittedly but he's a northern soul DJ it's black music and yeah. that's what the jam we're using instead of a support and you know you think of what these people did they did far more for things like you know the race issue and there was a massive issue back then because when you think about punk and you think about the backdrop that it grew out of there were race riots all over the country and yet these people like Joe and Paul you know, they're visionaries. I mean, they did more for race relations than any politician ever could.
kind of anarchist spirit that the club has. Did you think your father always had that kind of two fingers up to the establishment? I want to put on stuff that I want to put on. I think my dad, to be honest with you, no, my dad wasn't like that. My dad's very conservative yeah. um, in a lot of ways. He basically wanted something, I think, that um, continued to support jazz, because his his first love was jazz. But he knew a lot of very clever people, people like Ron Watts, who um, did the the punk festival in 76, and other quite sort of outlandish people that I think he actually really admired from afar, but wasn't really like that. I think I grew up... Uh, I mean, I'll just tell you a story. I mean, I, I, I grew up in Bournemouth in a very white, very middle class sort of town, village, and was very happy there, to be honest with you. But you would occasionally get incredibly bored. So I remember one night going to the Royal British Legion in Ferndown to an under-18s disco with a couple of mates because we were just absolutely bored out of our minds. And I think we were probably hoping to meet a girl or, you know, nick some beers or something like that. And... Um, the DJ was shocker. I mean, he's fucking awful. He's playing like the theme from Vandervolk to a load of 18-year-old kids or under 18-year-old kids. And come on, dance, dance with a Saturday night band. And he suddenly played uh, Anarchy in the UK. And those three minutes changed my life forever. Late. Someone had switched the lights in my head, that's how I describe it, and turned the watercolour I knew I wanted to do. And I can still remember every single aspect of that room. The colour, the people, the staging, the old ceramic Worthington ashtrays. I remember everything. It was like time stood still. And that moment is still as close in time as... I am talking to you now. Yeah. I mean, it had a, a, an, an absolutely dramatic effect on me. So what was it? Was it the first time it was like, this is completely different? I, what, what the hell? Like, I've never heard anything like this? Or was it just the lyrics that grabbed you? I think it was the sound to start with yeah. because I didn't really get to listen to the lyrics until I got the record and was able to play it and listen to it at home. But I, would, I spoke to my dad about this, and he went, well, they played the club six months ago, and it's like, why didn't you tell me? So I didn't <laughs> think you'd like them. They're nothing but bloody trouble. Yeah. But then I got talking to him and said, you know, it's really had a profound effect on me. And he said to me, actually, it sounds very much like the first time I ever heard Lucille by Little Richard. He said mm. that had exactly the same effect on me because I'd never heard anything like it. And that sound and that aggression and that kind of... Sticking to, even though I was unable to partially hear what they were singing about, it was so obvious from the music, it was sticking two fingers up to the establishment, and it was just the the moment I awoke, really. Yeah. So, we spoke about, you, you briefly spoke about the festival that you had here, the punk festival that you had, where about the Sex Pistols, the Clash, the Damned, uh, Sushi, yeah, all played here. Um, you said that you wasn't actually there, but no. I, like... Hundreds of other people say they were. More yeah, people yeah, yeah. than that actually probably fit in this club. <laughs> um, can you remember, what, so what was your dad, what did your dad say after that festival? Like, what was he like, what the fuck have I just put on? Like, no, I, I don't think he did. I think my dad at the time was just very pleased with the bar receipts. I mean, he just thought <laughs> it was great. And he thought it was another move. And to be fair yeah. to my dad, he had overseen quite a few movements by this time. So I think he thought it was just another phase that would come and go. 
I think everyone did. I mean, I don't think everyone, anyone at the time believed that it would have the implications that it's had um, for the movement and also for the 100 Club. Yeah. I mean, I speak to punks my age. I speak to young kids that are punks because there's loads of really good, cool punk bands coming out, bands like Cabbage you've played here. Um, and, you know, when you talk to them, they all know about the 100 Club. They all know because their dads had told them about it. And I just think that no one at the time realised the knock-on effect that it would have. And I still say that we've been very lucky here because we don't, you know, I personally, I'm the only shareholder here. So I don't have anyone to answer to. So I can do what I like. So occasionally things mess up occasionally things take off brilliantly but what it's meant is that we've been able to dabble we haven't had to go to someone in an accounts and go we'd really like to um, try this and and be told no actually we're not going to do that because there's not enough money or it's too much of a gamble yeah we've been able to make those gambles and some of them have been shocking you know and they've never been heard of again but just occasionally you get something like um, the punk festival or like Suede playing here and kicking off the whole sort of Britpop thing, just occasionally when you do get them right, they really are amazing. And I think the punk festival, certainly, despite being the forerunners of so many different things that we've done, I think that's the one thing that stands out more than anything else. That's the one thing I think that we're associated with more than anything. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, that that's how I know about the 100 Club yeah. was through that festival and obviously stories about... Sid Vicious fucking grabbing reporters and trying to choke him out or yeah. throwing bottles at people and stuff like that. Well, my dad says, you know, I think, and I think the reason my dad had an issue with punk was because of the notorious incident with the glass that hit yeah. the, the middle pillar and a shard of glass went through a girl's eye um, and blinded her. And my dad got a phone call from her mum uh, saying that he, she wanted to come down and speak to him and to Ron Watts because she wanted to know why her daughter had gone to a gig one night and come home blind in one eye my dad said it's still the worst moment of his life and it was the worst moment of his entire career in 37 years working here and a lot of people often throw that at me and they go well you know how can you sort of go on about punk when things like this happen but I always say to those people it doesn't matter if you've got 500 people in a room whether they're punks or they're mods or they're teds or they're football fans there's always going to be one idiot always For me, punk has always been about the greater good, and I have had nothing but an amazing experience of it. And I've, you know, um, without wanting to be all touchy-feely, since that moment in 1976, I've really tried to live my life by the whole ethos of it, because Mm. I think it's the ideal way, uh, or it's the way that, you know, people should live their lives, really. So we're going to sidetrack a little bit on the ethos of punk. One of the founders of punk, John Lydon, Johnny Brown, are you a bit disappointed to the way that he's gone in his political views like is that does that affect you in the way that you see the sex pistols or are you still seeing no, like if i'm honest sex pistols are sex pistols yeah and, yeah. I, and i think people change they get older but i think everything that he did for me uh and the band did for me will never change anything in my yeah. opinion and actually i've spoken to john two or three times um and he is genuinely one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life. And I actually sometimes think, not that I know John at all, like, you know, his friends would know him, but there is definitely still a mischievous streak in him. And I'm absolutely, I wouldn't be at all surprised if a lot of the stuff that he comes out with is purely for shock value rather yeah. than actually meant from the heart. And I don't believe any punk would actually genuinely b- believe some of the things that he says. Personally, I just don't. I mean, we talked about all the bands that have played 
and you've talked about how significant the venue is for a lot of British bands. When you've got bands like the Black Flags, um, I've I've just literally saw a terror, uh, yeah. a little uh, graffiti over there. The bands who come over here, are they aware of it as well? Are they aware yeah. of the history of the Hundred Club? Yeah, I mean, I've we had a band called Bardo Pond played here last year, um, and they used to go out and support Sonic Youth back in the eighties because they're all in their sort of forties. And I was talking to the singer who is, I forget her name now, she was lovely, amazing voice, little sort of hippie California chick. And she kind of just, I said, you know, what, you know, this is just, because I knew of them, but I'd never seen them live. And they were amazing. I mean, they're not punk, they're far from it, they're yeah. the complete opposite. But I said to her, you know, so where else are you playing in England? And she went, well, no, just here. I mean, we've flown in from the States, and actually we're going to continue the tour in Europe because we're much better looked after because promoters and festivals are supported by the local councils over there. So, no, the only reason we're here is because we flew into Heathrow and we'd always wanted to play the 100 Club, so we got a show here. But, no, the rest of the tour is going to carry on in Europe. So how's that make you feel? Like, it's so unusual to be able to have something whereabouts you have that love. From yeah, I mean, community of- it is, yeah. I mean, there's two instances. So things just knock you sideways. So I was in LA um, back in 2010 when the club almost went under. And we went out there, me, my wife, Lisa, and my kids, who have both worked here since, Jack and Ruby. And we decided, well, we don't know what the future's going to hold. Let's have the holiday of a lifetime. We did the whole um, Pacific Coast Highway thing. Yeah. It was amazing. We were in uh, San Diego. Uh, having something to eat and this guy comes up and I start talking to him he goes hey you're English I went yeah that's right yeah yeah he goes whereabouts are you from and I told him London he said oh just so what do you do you like solicitor or I went no no I run a music venue and he went a music venue which one and I said oh it's called the 100 club he went get out of here and he just went hey guys and like, called all the bar stuff over he goes he's played there he's been there. <laughs> all these guys in this restaurant in San Diego knew who we were I mean it yeah. was just the most staggering thing and I think actually I know that we got all our food and everything for free as well <laughs> it was staggering the perks the but perks. also when the club, as I touched upon it, almost went under in 2010, the thing that really got me, and it still makes me choke up now when I think about it, is the amount of letters and money orders and checks. So there was one lady who um, wrote to me and said, um, Dear sir, she didn't know my name, obviously, I used to go to the 100 Club a lot back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, I haven't been there since 1966 because we moved to Norwich. But I had an amazing time there, and I'm really sorry to hear that you're in the trouble that you're in. I hope this helps. And there was a check for 500 quid. And this lady was like 93 years old. There were money orders that came in from America. So there must have been people's goodwill must have accumulated seven or 8,000 quid in various ch- different checks and stuff. So I wrote to, back to all the people that had left a forward address. Not everyone did, and just said, look... Uh, this is just like the most amazing gesture, but I want you to know I'm not going to cash these because actually the gesture means far more than the money. Mm. And actually, if I can carry on, if some miracle happens and I can carry on and I get down because of uh, rent increases or because of business rate increases, I'm going to put all these in a file and I'm just going to look at them because it will remind me that there's actually there's a lot of amazing people in the world and it's not just bloody Westminster Council or my landlords on my back. <laughs> all about it, all about- Automatic lover, automatic lover, automatic lover. Hey, she comes, she's crazy, but she knows the scene. Carries an automatic. 
So you spoke about that night where about um, the Sex Pistols kind of played and, and changed your world. Where did you go after that? Like, what was was it like? Instantly, record shop. I want to find a record shop. I yeah. Wanna, so very a- shortly after that, I started working for Bill Null, the guy that built the stage. Funnily enough, Bill used to be in a band called the Bill Null um, Good Time Band, and he was my dad's best mate. And he played on that stage, and he was actually here when I had my sixth birthday. And I remember him saying. As a very important person in the room, it's Jeff Horton, it's his sixth birthday, and just wanting the floor to open up and, 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 and just <laughs> kill me, you know. Um, but I remember we were driving up to Scotland because, because by this time he'd met a Scottish lady and they were doing very well. She was um, had their own employment agency and oil had just been discovered in the North Sea and she was flying out roustabouts and Bill was building houses because he was a very clever guy. In fact, Bill actually built me, believe it or not, my first record player. He actually built me a record player. How that do is you the build honest a truth. He just got all these parts, the turntable, the, the 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 arm and everything else and then assembled a box with some sort of electronics and yeah. just made it all work. I mean, he was just the most amazing bloke. So I went up to work for him on this building site because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And uh, with my first pay packet, I went to the record shop in Aberdeen, in Union Street, and I bought the first Clash album. Yeah. And then that was my other kind of uh, out-of-body experience. So I'd heard Anarchy in the UK for the first time, and then when I'm playing this record, I put on the track Deny, and there's a reference to the 100 Club on it, and I'm just thinking somebody is it's like the big golden finger pointing yeah. out the sky somebody is telling me this is my destiny it must be and then i went to see probably now i have seen thousands and thousands of gigs mainly here but one of the greatest gigs i ever saw was a few months later when i'd moved back down to bournemouth and i went to see the clash at the Bournemouth Winter Gardens, which is quite a notorious gig. And I've still got the headline of the following day's Evening Echo. And the banner headline is, Never Again! (laughs) Exclamation mark. And then the first paragraph is something like, Bournemouth councillor John Smith, whatever his name was, has vowed to ban punk from Bournemouth after last night's show with a clash at the Bournemouth Winter Gardens. And the place got trashed. There's no question about it. But it didn't feel like violence that you had at the time at football. It was just that people were so excited. It was just, you know, and, and they were amazing. It's the only time I ever saw them. And they were unbelievable. They had made such a massive impression on me. But the following day, on the front page of this paper, there's also a black and white photograph of the Bournemouth Winter Gardens. And there's like smoke <laughs> coming out of the windows and out the side of the door and stuff. And it did get wrecked. I mean, you know, I don't think there's a chair left in there. But <laughs> it was just like youthful exuberance, really. I mean, it's the kind of that sort of thing when someone's been kept down all that time. And yeah. some, something, something like punk comes across and everyone just goes mental. And... Those 15 months that it lasted were probably the best 15 months of my life, to be honest with you. So those gigs, were you like in there, in the pit, yeah. bouncing around? Oh, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, so what about the idea, like, did you dress up? Because, like, obviously in that era, punk was very stylized. Yeah, and, and also, you know, the things like Mohicans and all the safety bins, that really came with a second wave of punk. Yeah. That really was so... Now, I probably... I think at one point I had a jumpsuit... 
and I think I had um, and obviously I had leather jackets and stuff like that and I've I had some I can't remember what it was like a sort of upside down cross or something in my ear or <laughs> yeah, yeah. something really pathetic you know I saw people like Elvis Costello back then I saw Sham 69 I saw uh, the specials a bit later on two years later which was the one of the most punk gigs I've ever seen the thing I think that that did for me was that I realised there and then in those situations, I was seeing music at its very, very best. It doesn't get better than this. As, a, as an event, as um, something to stir the blood, something to get you excited and make you think it doesn't get better than this. And actually, you know, I've always argued that actually punk is far more than just a three-chord guitar riff and a haircut. You see punk in everything. You talk about grime artists earlier on. It's the same there. But what I've tried to do here whether I'm putting on a punk gig, like my own punk festival that's in January, whether I'm putting on a night with Busted the other night, whether I'm putting a night on with a grime artist, I try to give people that come here the very same gigging experience that I had when I was growing up. Now, I know that makes me sound like my dad, that makes me sound a man of my age, but actually, do you know what, there's nothing wrong with that because actually, after all these years of experience, I think I'm right. I think that is what people want. I mean, we're going from punk to busted, right? So yeah. that's, you know, one extreme to another. But as we were talking about earlier on, those people that were down here for that show, I mean, you know, I, I don't really get what busted's about, but, you know, that's fine. You know, uh, as I said to you again, it, it's not good to be sno- snobbish with music. But when you see the stills and the footage of those people on that night here on Monday, you genuinely know that you have given an awful lot of people the best night of their life. And that's what it should be about. That's what we try and do here, you know? Uh, well, I mean, I'm going to admit now, I was actually at that Busted show. <laughs> My girlfriend's a huge Busted fan, so he came down. He, he very nicely put us on the list. And the thing that I noticed instantly was the lack of barriers. Yeah. No barrier. Yeah. And for me, any gig I go to should always have that no yeah. barrier because that that idea that a musician is within touching distance. Like you yeah. can, you may be near the speaker, but you can hear that guitar like yeah. being played. Yeah. That for me is the experience of going to yeah. a, a punk gig. Is that something that you've always got? I know you've said that the only time you've ever put a barrier was Paul McCartney. Have you ever come close to? Any other time? No, I mean, I you know, I kind of just say to people. I mean, I said with Paul McCartney, um, you know, uh, Barry Marshall, his manager, who's a smashing bloke, but they loaded in the night before, and Barry said, right, all the productions coming at such and such a time. Then we got the back line, then the barriers come, and I went, what barrier? And he went, yeah, we're going to put a barrier in. I said, no, 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 it's the Hundred Club. I said, I know it's Paul McCartney, but no, he's got to play it like the Hundred Club, surely. And he said to me, Jeff. It's the 18th of December, or 17th, I can't remember what the date was now, off the top of my head, 18th thing. He said it's very, very close to the anniversary of the assassination of John Lennon. And when this anniversary comes round, we get every single nutcase in the world email us and phone us, so they're going to do this to Paul, they're going to do that to Paul. So, Paul McCartney playing your venue is a very good thing. Paul McCartney dying in your venue is a very bad thing. I think it's best we put the barrier in, and I kind of went, all right, fair enough. <laughs> so, but that, I think, is the only time it's ever happened. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, it wouldn't be bad for the legacy of the club to have it like that. <laughs> People have said that to me, but I've thought hard, and, and actually, I'm glad it didn't. But um, it's, and I think it, I think it kind of goes that. So I don't have to tell people no barriers anymore. I think, I think people just expect to play it. And also, you know, you get one or two managers who kind of go, well, we want to secure it. And I just go, no, I'm not having high-vis 
um, security across the front of the stage. There will be a couple of security on the side of the stage who will jump in if they have to. But at the end of the day, uh, no, that's not what we do. We give people, as I say, the kind of gigging experience that I had. And, you know, I remember being at the Southampton Gaumont or at the Hammersmith Apollo or uh, Hammersmith Odin as it was being crushed right up against the front there and mm. just thinking this is amazing oh, and I was talking to Bobby Gillespie um, a, a, a while back and Bobby said to me you know he said the fun has just gone out of doing festivals now because I'm a front man I don't play anything my job is to communicate with my audience how can I do that if they're a football pitch length away I can't possibly do that and actually I've never understood how it went, you know, quite recently at all the big festivals from the crowd being right up against the band to suddenly disappearing, you know, 100 yards away. I just, what happened there? Health and safety. That's what happened there. I mean, if you go to Brixton Academy now, which was one of my most, like, like, for a big venue, I do like Brixton Academy is an amazing venue, I agree. But they've now got those barriers that are kind of scattered so there's there's one in the middle and then there's another one to the right and another one to the left and then there's another one in the middle and it just separates people no. so much so therefore there's no circle pits really going there's no like I think it's their way of trying to stop like injuries really it's their way of taking but you the see quota. the thing is right I've again I'm a man of a certain age talking now and I do you know and I have punk through me like a stick of rock but there is risk with everything mm. Um, if there wasn't, life would be so bloody boring, it wouldn't be worth living. At the end of the day, either of us touch wood, it doesn't happen. We could walk out and get run over by a bus. You know, what is the worst thing that can happen to somebody? I'd like to know what the figures are for people that have died at festivals or, or watching live music. It will be absolutely tiny. In terms of percentages of people being seriously hurt or killed at any gig anywhere, whether it's a grassroots music venue, whether it's an arena or whether it's at a festival... I would imagine off the top of my head, it's something like 0.001%. So why all this over-the-top health and safety? I've got a friend who tried to start their own festival, and it was just ridiculously expensive for insurance. And This is what you're up against. I was talking to um, a mate of mine, uh, Ronnie, um, who's worked with various different um, promoters for ages, and he said that he was doing M&M at Wembley. Oh, wow, okay. He said, and the following day they got a complaint from a woman who said that she heard an enormous bang and ran out the toilet and ran out and missed the M&M show. And we went and they said, well, it was the uh, pyrotechnics going off at the M&M show. And she said, well, I thought it was a terrorist attack. So we said, well, did you not notice that there weren't hundreds of thousands of people running out of the stadium with you? Yeah. And that's kind of what it's become now. Do you know what I mean? It's just like ridiculous. So someone's in the toilet, she hears a bang. She runs out thinking there's a terrorist, and it's just like the pyrotechnics, and uh, it's just, and she's, she wants her money back. It's just crazy. That's just someone who had a shit show, and they just want their <laughs> money back. That's what that is. So how did you 
end up coming here? Like, did your dad was it always in the in the line that you're always going to come? No, take over from I, dad I was actually adamant that I wanted to be involved in music, but I didn't want to work here for my dad because. I had a very strong relationship with my dad, and I knew a lot of people that had walked into family's business, and it had been an absolute disaster. They always say don't mix money yeah, with family. exactly. So. Um, but I remember I, I was building aeroplanes um, at Hearn Airport for British Aerospace um, in the 80s, and um, i just passed my apprenticeship, and two weeks later they announced they were shutting the whole factory down. This is in 1984. So my dad said to me, he'd been speaking to me on and off for about a year saying Jeff look you should really come and start work and we need some help and I kind of just said look dad I just you know it's father son thing no it doesn't really appeal but anyway I then had no job so my dad said right you've got no excuse now I need to come up to London just give it a couple of months so I said okay so I came up with the intention of giving it a couple of months and I just fell in love with it Um, and I remember my very first night here I was. It was with uh, the Ken Collier Jazz Band, and it was rammed. And Ken was a, a massive hero amongst all the sort of jazz fraternity in the UK. And the following night, I think it was either the UK Subs or English Dogs. I can't remember who it was. And so I knew within forty-eight hours what the Hundred Clubs music policy was it was, yeah. was like. It was just like that's amazing. So when did you take over? Full time then. So I started working in '84, um, and by about within a year, I'd, I was managing. Well, I managed the bar straight away, even though I had no bar experience. Uh, God knows what the bar staff must have thought about that. <laughs> but then also, I started promoting quite yeah. a bit. So my first ever show was with Wilco Johnson, and I remember um, I charged uh, five quid in, and I paid Wilco five hundred quid, and we had five hundred people at a fiver. And the following day I walked in and my dad says, I want a word with you. And I went, what? <laughs> he went, why did you pay Wilco 500 quid last night? And I said, because we had 500 people at a fiver, Dad. He said, mm, next time pay him three. <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of like that with my dad. Uh, and he, is, he was a real stickler for stuff like that. But I think, you know, it wasn't him personally, the generational thing, you know. I think that with a lot of people that are in business around that time, that kind of rationing mentality, you know, it's it sort of... Um, finds its way into business and that kind of ideology but I, I actually after my dad retired and I took over completely it was 2001 yeah and I remember doing the opposite of everything that he did so I started paying my staff really well and then things happened for instance like people would turn up for work so a lot of the time beforehand my dad had called me so you've got to come in on a night off because someone hadn't turned up to work well they're being paid shit money and it's going to be a really difficult night no wonder they haven't turned up so I just made sure um, that people were well paid but also there's you know there's a business reason as well um, for that is, is that people would not only turn up but actually all our losses suddenly stopped overnight so you know we'd have stock checks where we'd, we'd lost maybe 2,000 quid. Wow. And it's just like, well, I mean, the stock checks were monthly, so it was like 500 quid a week, which is a lot of money back then. And to me, it was just like, well, actually, if we pay people decent money and they feel appreciated, this sort of thing isn't going to happen anymore. And sure enough, it didn't. Um, But also, you know, other things would happen. So you'd have a really busy night. You'd be two people short because two people haven't turned up, which meant that you can't open that small bar. And in today's money, if you don't open that small bar, you're looking at losing 2,000 quid. Mm. So pay, pay, it's like an insurance policy almost, you know. And you're making people feel 
good about themselves, you're making f- people feel like they're being properly rewarded, so they want to come into it and they actually enjoy coming into work. So let's kind of talk about the business side then. There's been loads of uh, venues that have closed. So obviously CBGB's uh, closed its door in 2006, mm. which is for a lot of punks like the mecca of, of American punk. Yeah. And then that kind of left the 100 Club after the Astoria closed down around the corner. The 100 Club was probably the, 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 sex, the second now most punk venue of people associating with punk and then in 2010 you nearly closed how did that come about was it just all of a sudden uh, rent charges gone up or what the fuck or was it like a slow progression it was yeah no I mean there'd been a bit of a slow progression but then we got hit by a massive increase in rent it had gone up something like 40% it was just completely and utterly uh, impossible and if I'm honest I made the decision in the, I think we announced it in the September that year, because I owed something like £20,000 for that quarter's rent, and I was issued um, with a bailiff notice, and I just thought, right, you know, uh, I can't continue like this anymore, because actually I realised as well when I started looking through the accounts, if anyone really starts looking through this, they'll probably be able to prove that I'm trading while insolvent. Yeah. And if that happens, they can come after me, and that's going to affect my my family as well, and I can't have that. So I made the... So funny enough, a guy called Phil Strongman, who's a mate of mine, just called me out of the blue one day while I was pondering all this and said to me, Jeff, I hear the 100 Club's going to shut because of Crossrail. Can I come and chat to you? And I said, Phil, it's got nothing to do with Crossrail. It's nothing to do with them at all. I said, it's just that we cannot cope with the constant increases. And it's, and it's just like the, the, the invisible ones. Things like duty mm. on alcohol have gone up something like 12 times in 18 months. And it just closes your margins to, margins to such an extent, there's nothing left to play with anymore. So I said to him, Phil, you know, we can't continue any longer for the reasons that I've just said. I'm announcing that the club's shutting at the end of this year. And I calculated, because September to December is my busiest time of the year, that actually, if I made the announcement then, every single night would be open, every single night would be packed, which would earn me enough money to be able to pay off all my debtors and I could just walk away from it. And uh, so I went to the press and I told the world, you know, what we were paying in rent. I told the world what we were paying in business rates. My landlords were furious. I was going to say, you must have got a backlash. From, oh, yeah. From, that, from yeah. the uh, Yeah, I did. I mean, I had a massive fallout with them over it. But as I said to them, look, I've been to see you four, five, six times now. And I've pleaded with you, you know, to just please just keep a lid on our rents. It's a really important place. And I have warned you that if people hear that the 100 Club is shutting, they're not going to be happy. And so we're going to have to shut, and I've told them why. And actually, there isn't a single word, full stop or comma, out of place, because if there was, you'd have issued me with a writ. You wouldn't be sort of falling out with me like this. And then I got a letter from Westminster Council as well saying, Jeff, we saw your thing, you need to know. It's just like, it's all bollocks, actually. That is what we're paying. Anyway, also, um, reading this in the back of a cab was a guy called Richard Copcup, who at the time was GM of Converse UK, who came to see me a week later and knock on the door, this great big bloke, six foot two, tattoos everywhere. He went, Jeff, are you Jeff? I went, yeah. He said, I'm Richard from Converse. He said, mate, we need to talk. He said, um, 
I was a drummer in a punk band on that stage. We were called the Souls of Destruction, and we used to support English dogs, UK subs, etc., etc. He said, this place means so much to me, and I'm in a great position with my job at Converse to be able to help. What do you need? So we sat down, had a chat, and a few days later, this head of terms came back with this sponsorship inserted into it, which was just, my God, I can't fucking believe this. This is just, I didn't think things like this actually happened. Yeah. And then I went, Richard, hang on a minute. I said, um, before I sign this off, you do know that we can't call this the, 100, uh, the, the Converse 100 Club. You do know that we can't replace that 100 at the back of the stage with a big Converse logo. And he went to me, Jeff, why the fuck would we do that? And I went, because you're a big corporate company. He said, Jeff, if you sign this and you get into bed with us, you'll realise very quickly that we don't operate like other big corporate companies. And to be fair to them, they were as good as their word. And... Um, we had some amazing days with them. So we put on the Represent Festival where we had UK subs play here. That was the punk uh, day. We had Nas did the hip-hop night. We did Paul Weller. Uh, we had Blur for the, the, the Brit-pop night. Um, Spiritualised. Uh, Toots and the Matles did the reggae day. It was just the most sensational. We did some amazing stuff with them. Black Rebel Motorcycle Club came and played here for a night. We did some amazing stuff. Um, but in 2016, it was pretty obvious that um, Converse is, you know, it wasn't the same relationship anymore. It kind of moved on, yeah. I think, a little bit, which all companies do. And they decided it was time for somebody else to pick up the baton, which is fair enough. You know, and I always say I will never have anything but good to say about Converse because without them, we wouldn't be here now. Luckily, I'd had a relationship with Fred Perry before my relationship with Converse and I knew their chairman John very well and John had always said to me even while Converse were on board Jeff if anything ever happens with Converse promise me you'll be the I'll be the first person you'll speak to so when I knew um, that Converse were going to move away I rang John and I think John came to see me at the end of 2016 and I think we had two meetings that lasted 10 minutes and John just went, we're in, we're here. And they have been absolutely unbelievable. In fact, actually, I think the fit is actually even better than Converse. I never thought I'd ever say that when mm. Converse were on board. But I think Fred understand me a bit more because they're a smaller company as well. We're also both British. We also um, have longevity. We both have um, music heritage. And it's turned out to be absolutely amazing. And they have done some amazing shows here. Absolutely amazing shows. We've had moon landings with them. We've had Baxter Jury with them. We did, I mentioned it briefly, um, when we had the fall here. Um, we've just done an amazing Sunday afternoon called All Our Tomorrows with like 12 up-and-coming bands, acts from Black Midi, who are superb, Dylan Cartledge, who's great, people like that, Kojak, who's just a little hip-hop collective from, uh, from Dublin who are just amazing. Um, so, yeah, they kind of absolutely get what The 100 Club's about. And, you know, it's funny, when I talk to people like you who obviously understand what The Club's about as well, and, you know, people like Fred, I can tell you it's a really rare thing, you know, um, a lot of people will come in from like big corporations and go, Jeff, I've had this really good idea. We're going to do a music festival down here now. Uh, our colours are yellow and blue, so let's paint everything. And this is like, just piss off. You know, you, you haven't got a fucking clue. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I've been very lucky in having two partnerships, one that ended with Converse and then my current one with Fred, where I've had two partners who understood absolutely what the 100 Club ethos is. And I think that's quite a rare thing. Just wanted to go back to the closure. Was at any point, did any of the big groups like Festival Republic or Live Nation start swimming around you, no. like trying to take a no? No. But there again, I think that's my fault because I, I know that I went on record around that time. And if you Google it, you'll find it somewhere where I said, and I still believe it, I will never, ever sell out to one of those companies. I will not let the 100 Club become part of a portfolio of a big corporate promoter uh, or or, um, whatever, because at the end of the day, they won't know how to run it properly. And actually, what would have killed me, what would have hurt me more than anything far more than just closing would have been to say you'd be stood at a bus stop six months after selling out to someone like that and hearing two people having a conversation saying you know I went to the 100 club the other night it was fucking awful it used to be such a great venue that would have really killed me and I know that sounds terribly egotistical because it makes me sound like I'm the only person who knows how to run it I'm not it's my team that run it and it's my team that actually keep it keep it so Jenny who works for me my booker Stoyan that works behind the bar my sound engineers Ray and Dan my security people and, and the guys that I've got into bed with such as Sybil at Music Venue Trust and Chloe and Sam you know these are the people that run the 100 Club not me I've just managed to put this group of people together but what I have done is handpick these people knowing full well they know exactly what the 100 Club is about and not everyone does mm. and I know that if I did end up selling it would end up going to someone who can afford to buy it but actually doesn't share the same values that we all do well we kind of spoke about it before we actually started recording was the idea of government actually protecting venues like the 100 club beckler and bristol um the troubadour uh in uh, west london venues like that whereabouts they do have some kind of historical element they're not just a club they're actually part of the community yeah they're the birthplace of music and also yeah it's a massive part of the community and especially i think in central london now there's very few live music venues because... Like there's no community. They've just been swallowed up. I mean, you've got an Ann Summers to the left of you and is it a body shop? Yeah, yeah, Or something yeah. like that to the right Boots, of you. Yeah. Boots. So, yeah, that identity of having something in a major tourist element of, of walking down this road... Do you believe that the government have been doing more? I know there's an initiative whereabouts now they're trying to push through Parliament whereabouts these sites are now going to be seen as heritage sites. I think there's a lot of... um, I think that there's a lot of talk, um, but the proof will be in the pudding when actually stuff's put into legislation. I think it's quite a trendy thing to actually be seen to be supporting. But it's no use just um, giving sound bites. You're going to have to make it law. Things like agent of change have got to come in and become law so that people can no longer um, complain about noise emitting from a venue. In fact, a lot of the time it isn't even the music. It's the incidental noise of people leaving or car engines starting or people coughing or people, you know... Since when is a basic form of human communication like talking... Uh, since when should it be banned after midnight? I mean, come on, it's, it's just... Re- and the problem I think we have in London is there are a huge amount of entitled people from all over the world that are very wealthy, that move in here because they think, oh, London's really cool and trendy, and they want to fucking change it all. I mean, it's just... You know, if you... I'm sorry, again... I'm a man of a certain age talking, but if you want to be able to go to bed at nine o'clock at night with your windows open without being disturbed, then go and fucking move to Sussex or Surrey or something. (laughs) You can't possibly be expected to do it in central London. And actually, it's a really unhealthy thing for business. I mean, at the end of the day, 
you know, whether you like it or not, the nighttime um, economy is crucial to London. And if you stymie it all the time, I mean, how long is it going to be before someone finds the sound of knives and forks and glasses outside when people are eating outside offensive? I mean, when's it going to stop? You know, it's just... You know, is it, it, it a restaurant's not going to be able to let people sit in a garden space and eat after nine o'clock in the morning because somebody finds the sound of laughter and crockery offensive? I mean, it's just <laughs> seriously, people need to have a long, hard look at themselves and chill the fuck out. They really do. It's not even that. It's also the fact that this we are a tiny little country, and for some somehow we have created music yes. that is loved around the world. I mean. No other country in the world that's as small as us has created no. the Beatles, Bowie, Pistols, the Stones. Clash, Stones, Amy Oasis. Amy the Specials. You just keep no. going on and on and on. And that's because we've had venues that allow these bands exactly. to be able to grow. By shutting down pubs or clubs, you, you, you're cutting off something that we are known for as music. I went to um, a culture, media and sports panel in Parliament to talk about this very subject of the week. And Shaldo... Um, who was part of the panel, he came up with a very, very good analogy. He said, if you start taking grassroots music venues out of the equations, it's like going to school, you go to reception, and then you miss out primary school altogether, and you go straight into secondary school. And that's exactly what it's like. Bobby said to me a million times, you know, I'm sure the UK is full of amazing bands in bedrooms, right? But... It's places like this where they learn how to perform, where they learn how to cut their teeth, where they learn how to engage with an audience. You can be the greatest band in the world, but if you don't have any personality, if you can't put that across to your audience, you're going nowhere. And you can't expect people to go from a bedroom, to use Shadow's analogy, to, straight onto a stage at um, you know, Isle of Wight or wherever. Yeah. And actually, the other thing is, as well, without this continued conveyor belt of talent that comes through, not just the 100 Club, but the Lexington and the Joiners and all these amazing venues around the country, who is actually going to headline, say, the Pyramid stage in 2025? It's either going to become the domain of Simon Cowell, so you get all that fucking X-Factor shit on there, in which case people will just vote with their feet or the thing that i think we are all facing if this continues is that festivals are going to up their roots and move to europe where there is a lot of support so you can you could end up with something like the isle of Wight festival in barcelona or something like that because already i've already mentioned with bardo pond you know a lot of these american acts are now coming over doing one show here and then doing the rest of the tour in europe because over there the local councils Local government understand that actually you're putting this amazing show on in this venue, which means there are people coming into our town, there are people going and eating at our restaurants, there are people having coffee and tea in our cafes, they're having a couple of beers in our bars, they're using our hotels, there's transport structures, infrastructures being used. We're the only people in Europe that don't understand that. And one of the things that I said to these MPs at this um, CSM meeting is, you know, there has to be bigger picture thinking from people in authority because if we go down the pan, you know, a lot of authority figures probably won't give a shit. In fact, they'll probably be quite pleased. But actually, it's going to affect them as well because it's going to affect tourism. And actually, when you look at the amount of money that live music puts in the treasury coffers, 4.4 billion, I think it was last year, and a total turnover of 7 billion pounds, that's huge. So if these bands are cut off at this point and this conveyor belt stops, that's going to affect everyone, not just grassroots live music venues. 
So we spoke about how Fred Perry are kind of understanding how you want to work and, and and also putting on shows as well. Something else that you've done as well, you've done a book, 75 Years of the 100 yeah. Club, whereabouts, I think it's fascinating, whereabouts, it's not just about the, the people who play the stage. You've got bar staff, yep. people who came, doormen and stuff like yep. that. So how did that come about? And also, have you gone through and gone, holy fuck, I never knew about this? No, I, I knew most of the stuff in there. Um, but we always feel, as we've you know said repeatedly here, that, that the 100 Club is about the people, right? Yeah. It's my name above the door because someone's has to be. But when all the things that have happened, you know, when we've been in trouble, as I mentioned with the checks and the other things that I haven't mentioned. So during that time in 2010... There were lads coming into the club who'd never been here before from places like Liverpool and Leeds and Newcastle and Oldham and just going, are you the bloke that owns this? And I go, yeah, and they go, come here, mate. And they just give me a big hug and they just go, we really hope that you stick through because we've never been here, but we've heard all about it. So it is, I truly believe it's a place for the people. I, I, we've never discriminated in terms of certainly not on things like sort of where you're from, but in terms of money, you know, I mean, there'll be often, you know, me and my team, there will be people who will ring up and just go, is there any chance of getting a ticket for such and such without having to pay one for a towel? And there isn't, but we'll just go, we'll put you on the 100 Club guest list and people can't believe it. In fact, um, the guy that does all my T-shirts, he rang me or emailed me to come and see the Alice Cooper show. And he said, is there any chance I'm coming down from Newcastle? And I said, no, I'll stick you on the guest list. And he went, well, why would you do that? You don't know me. I said, but you're a fan, and this is what it's about. It's not about the industry. It's not about agents. It's not about record labels. It's about people like you. You're a massive Alice Cooper fan, I can tell. You can come in on the guest list. It's fine. Then that guy got in touch with me again um, because he's massively into punk when I started doing Resolution. He went, Jeff, you may not remember me, but you're the guy that you let in for the Alice Cooper show. Actually, I want to do all your 100 Club Punk t-shirts, and actually I'm going to do them for £4.25 and deliver them as well. So, you know, that's kind of, in a nutshell, what the club's about. We are, that's my vision of it anyway. And um, I, I, I think that that's massively important, you know. I think it's massively important. It is about people. You know, life's about people, and it's something that modern life it seems to kind of forget sometimes everyone's so busy socializing on twitter or instagram or facebook you know i think if people were to have more face-to-face conversations the world would be a much healthier place i think that to me was the punk ethos what you just did right there was it's kind of like pay it back like you, you yeah. do stuff because you know it's right you keep it in for the scene because people like that music so why would you stop someone else from enjoying exactly. it exactly like that that that, that, for me, in one sentence... Is and, just you know, my daughter, us. Ruby, who I'm really proud of, she's just finished a degree at Newcastle, but she absolutely loves music, and she loves beer, and she loves the 100 Club. And she's been helping me a lot, um, especially with resolution. So, you know, she went from just doing the door when she was sort of 18, and a lot of kids was quite nervous. And I said to her, just get down there and do the door on my festival, because you'll love it. And she skipped out the door and skipped back every night, and she's gone from doing the door to... Not, well, she still does the door, but also she does all the... the ticket in she does all the um 
social networking stuff. She does all the riders, all the production, and she absolutely loves it. And she was doing the door last year, and there were two girls that came down twice to see UK subs and... um, I can't remember who else they came to see, the boys. Then they turned up another night, and Ruby said, oh, it's really nice to see you. And they said, oh, we're not coming in tonight. We're students. We've been twice. We haven't got any money. We can't come in. And Ruby, without any prompt from me, just went, let me daft, just go down. And I said to her, do you know what, Ruby, when she told me, I said, I'm so proud that I haven't had to teach you that. Yeah. That's exactly how you behave. That's exactly what you do. I mean, having two young girls into a punk gig, that really summed up what Resolution's all about now. So if you look at the demographic, you've got old punks like me in here. You've got old rasters from the punky reggae party. You've got kids that are obviously into grime and hip-hop. with skater kids. Two young girl students, 18, 19 years old. That is what it's all about. That's what the club's about. And that's what uh, Resolution represents, really. Moving forward, obviously, you took over from your father. Yeah. You spoke about your daughter then. Do you think your daughter's going to be the one who takes it on? Or? I think that she'd love to, and Jack, my son as well, um, would love to. Jack, though, he's only just started at university. He's got another couple of years yet before he decides what he's going to do. I have said to all of them, I wouldn't even think about handing over to them just yet because yeah. there has to be some kind of... Um, there has to be a future here. I would not lumber them with the financial worries that I've had. I just wouldn't do that to anyone, let alone my own kids. But if we can find some kind of common ground, if with all the stuff that I'm doing with Music Venue Trust, with the GLA, um, with Independent Venue, if we can actually knock down some barriers and we can actually get some funding and we can get our business rates reduced because we're a grassroots live music venue and all these other things that I'm challenging at the moment, and that there is a viable future, then, yeah, most certainly I would love to hand over. And I think that they would both do an amazing job too. Are you hopeful? Like, do you, do you sit there now going, we are in a much better position than we've ever been? Like, no. moving forward, no? I don't, uh, because there are still people who, you know, that I'm having to deal with. I've got to go to a hardship committee meeting in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, because I've applied for hardship for my business rates and been turned down because they say I've made a profit. But I don't know whose accounts they've been looking at. They're certainly not mine because I haven't. So I need to f- uh, f- find that out. Um, rents as well. You know, we've got Crossrail opening next year. So rents are only going to go one way, I would imagine. What we need is for a massive sort of hearts and mind uh, battle, really, to make these people realise, actually, do you know what? There is such a good thing as goodwill, as corporate goodwill. And actually, if you were to hand some out, you might realise that there's a lot more to life than just money. And actually, you might find that you're financially better off if you make one or two decisions which are done for the greater good rather than just making loads of money. So I think we've still got a big fight, but I'm not giving up. I'm passionate about what I do. I'm passionate about the 100 Club. I feel a duty to keep it going because it feels like I've got the family silver in my hands. But also, I actually quite like being an enormous pain in the ass, which I think a lot of people think I am. So, you know, I'm fucking staying here. I'm com- yeah, I'm not going anywhere <laughs> until you shoot me. Well, we all look forward to the sitting that we all have when the bailiffs come and try to kick us out. But, Jeff, thanks so much for your time, man. And it, like... For a fan of punk, just sitting in this room is just That's so brilliant. happy, man. Because thank you, like it's such a venue that is so close to a lot of punk's heart, and also not just punks, musicians, like anyone who, who loves music. Yeah. Like this venue is such a a part of their life. It's just yes. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just tell you one quick story, and this isn't 
this isn't plug in the book, but there's a great story in there from Jules Holland, and he told me this six or seven years ago, and I always told people that, and they went, yeah, sure, Jeff, yeah, we know you like a good story, but come on. But he actually says he really loves the 100 Club and is really grateful to it because he was conceived after his mum and dad had a night out down here. <laughs> so there you go. That's one of the stories in the book. <laughs> 100 Club, gen you laid. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much, Jeff. Cheers, mate. Oh, thanks. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. Thank you to Jeff for giving up his time to talk to me. And as you heard, The 100 Club is not financially out the woods. So go and check out what's on the bill. Go to the100club.co.uk and go and watch a live show. Don't live in London? Then check out your local venue and see what's going on. Because if you don't go, shit will close down and music will suffer. If you're a punk geek like myself, make sure you check out the 100 Club Stories. It's a fucking great book. I got it for Christmas. It's in the bio on the phone that you listen to this podcast on, I'm guessing. In that bit, there'll be a little link. Whereabouts, it will show you where you can purchase the book. Right, support the podcast and go and buy yourself a fucking t-shirt. All money raised will go towards making this podcast bigger and better don't have the cash right now for a t-shirt no worries go rate and review on itunes spotify or whatever podcast streaming you use it's a great way to help the podcast for free it helps people find it easier and stops people from fucking finding cm punk don't forget to go and follow on the socials at punks in pubs right that's it from me thank you for listening playing at the show this week are a great ska band called p-funk north from new jersey if you see them on the bill make sure you check them out they're fucking great if they're in the uk i'm at the front dancing my ass off this track is called third degree of separation and it's a cracker as always if you go into a punk show in the coming weeks and you see someone fall down you pick them right back up until next time happy new year bye bye
take it in stride this time. Don't think 